Hello, and welcome to our podcast, Veiled Violence. This podcast is created by Alexis Gorfine, Addie Millman, Becca Nickerson, and Grace Connor as a project for our senior history course, Violence, War, and Peace. In this podcast, we will examine the history of emotional abuse and how it manifests in the modern day, specifically in our own high school. We want to warn all listeners that some of the content in this podcast may be triggering to those of you who have experienced or know someone who has experienced emotional abuse. If you or a loved one needs help, please refer to the podcast description for some wonderful organizations that can provide assistance. In this third installment of the podcast series, put together by Grace Connor, we will dive deeper into the study of the way that violence manifests in the interactions we have every day at our school. Before we begin, let's take a look at our language once again. To reiterate from episodes one and two, the United States Department of Justice defines psychological violence as an action or collection of actions that persistently undermine an individual's sense of self-worth and or of self-esteem. This violence is not always immediately recognized in day-to-day life, despite its pervasive presence. It is easy to identify acts of violence that blatantly defy the order of the law, but it is the more nuanced attacks on individuals that can slip under the radar. Our school is not immune to the culture of dismissing and excusing seemingly small acts of violence that plague our greater society. Many community members are quick to share on social media their own disdain for the latest trending report of a teacher in another state shaming a student for their clothing or a new national anti-bullying cause, but action on our own campus is quieter. In this episode, we will discuss the way in which acts of verbal and emotional violence are perpetrated and handled on the high school campus. Central to the high school experience of so many students is the participation on a sports team. Though team dynamics tend to be educational, fun, and supportive, the dynamic can sometimes shift to a less rosy reality. At many schools, including my own, the high-stress environment can sometimes bleed into athletics, paving the way for harmful team dynamics that have monstrously negative effects on students. I spoke with one ex-rower, who we'll call Mia, on the dynamic of her rowing team. Some non-essential details have been changed to protect anonymity. Mia had always been a competitive and successful athlete. Long before she entered high school, Mia had significant experience on teams that relied on the individual rather than on the team for success, such as swimming and running. Though her new activity was inherently a team sport, Mia saw a different reality in her own team. She told me, I found that instead of what is normal, that the dynamic on the team was, if anything, more competitive, more individual-focused than anything I'd experienced before. On the gym wall hung popsicle sticks, one for each girl, arranged in distinct formations, as well as a sheet detailing the stats and physical metrics of each athlete. The coaches would sit down with team members and point to popsicle sticks or metrics and say, she's your biggest competition. As Pierre Bourdieu and Louis Vacant state in their essay, Symbolic Violence, symbolic violence, to put it as tersely and simply as possible, is the violence which is exercised upon a social agent with his or her complicity, end quote. 
In this way, symbolic violence is a means by which psychological violence is enacted, yet it is invisible to the naked eye. Symbolic violence shields itself under the veil of necessity. Victims are expected to accept the verbal and psychological abuse because their situation and the power dynamics they are placed in demand them to do so, lest they risk their own standing or autonomy. Mia explains that among the constant pressures of staying fit for the team, quote, weight trumped all, at least for me, end quote. She continued, quote, at one point, the coaches wanted a group of us to shed weight in order to improve our performance. The coaches asked everyone in the group to cut two pounds and asked me to cut seven. They said that since I was already smaller than the other girls, asking them to shave more weight would be, quote, fat shaming, but it was okay since I was a little smaller. I had no choice but to stop eating. The team was riddled with moments like that. Coaches poked at athletes' thighs, leading people to hate each other and to hate themselves. It is important for us to acknowledge, however, that Mia's perspective does not tell all sides of the story. Another team member, who we'll call Logan, pointed out that certain aspects of the sport can push team members to compete regardless of their team's dynamic or their coach's actions. She noted that most people quit because they didn't like the sport, and that competitiveness was just part of it. Though Mia and Logan's points may seem to be contrasting, Logan's viewpoint actually bolsters the fact that it is not the medium itself that breeds violence, but the people in charge of the organization that do so. It was the unhealthy power dynamics on the team that caused psychological harm to team members, including, but not limited, to Mia. Richard Norman shed some light on defined cultural roles, such as that of the coach. He writes, quote, the roles which people occupy within social institutions of all kinds carry with them various rights and duties which serve to define the roles, end quote. In this case, it is the duty of the coach to lead their athletes. In many other cases, however, this leadership takes the form of instituting a distinct hierarchical system between the athletes, the captains, and the coaches that often does more harm than it does good. Thus, an important power dynamic is established. The ability of a coach to succeed in fulfilling their duties depends strongly on their ability to maintain an understood level of respect from their athletes. In addition, a coach's worth is determined largely by their team's record. W's and you're succeeding, earning your pay, and L's and you failed. Yet the athletes, being students, sometimes don't give their full effort. They skip out on practices or ignore a coach's instruction. The players, in doing so, take away the power of the coach. It is in these threatened power dynamics in which acts of violence arise, and coaches take to the methods that Mia described herself. This system is not limited strictly to athletics, However, most acts of verbal and psychological violence we see on campus do involve a similar threatened power dynamic, at least to some extent. As we've touched on earlier in this series, arguably all emotionally manipulative relationships occur when there is a distinct power dynamic or the desire for one in a relationship. In her book, Trauma and Recovery, Judith Herman even asserts that, quote, man's discovery that his genitalia could serve as a weapon to generate fear 
must rank as one of the most important discoveries of prehistoric times, along with the use of fire and the first crude stone axe, end quote. It is that very fear, stemming from a need for the aggressor to maintain their own power, that prompts acts of violence. Our high school is not immune to acts of verbal, emotional, or symbolic violence in forms off the playing field either. In many cases, violent backlashes and public verbal attacks on social media occur, stemming from a place of deep anger. Recently, on high school campuses across the country, the issue of racial discrimination, both on and off school grounds, has become an issue, and our school is no exception. In the past few years, students, teachers, and administrators alike have been called out for sexist and racist statements and actions. The response is not always violent. Many parties, upon being approached, choose to take to calm yet firm rhetoric to express their opinion and resolve the situation. However, even then, responses all too often negate and sometimes even ignore the victim. In doing so, the perpetrator is committing an act of symbolic violence. In recent years, a group of students approached faculty with a proposal to make the school more inclusive of and respectful to students of color. Days went by, then weeks, then months, and the students got no response. They were silenced. In the third chapter of Trauma and Recovery, Herman makes this singular statement, quote, The developing child's positive sense of self depends upon a caretaker's benign. At our school, the members of the faculty and the administration are the ones who take on these roles of caretakers. In the case of the aforementioned racially charged incident, the use of power was not indeed benign. Instead, powers was used as a means to justify inaction. The people in power said they were busy. They had other things to do. Though this incident and Mia's story stem from very different places, the blatant power dynamic between adults on campus and their students, or the threat to that power dynamic, resulted in violence. I spoke with a former editor-in-chief of the school newspaper, in an attempt to gain her perspective on how responses to these acts of verbal violence are reported to and received by the greater school population. She said, quote, We have discussions, and so much of our community and lifestyle is centered in conversation and confronting disagreement, whether it be over academics or over things happening in our lives. I think it creates an environment where we're more equipped to address instances when people have said something harmful whether that person be a faculty member, a visitor, or a student. I think that we, in general, have the tools to talk about these things in a way that maybe other people don't necessarily, but I don't know if that means we always do talk about that, though. I think the school tends to err on the side of silence rather than attacking things head-on." Yet just as faculty may employ verbal and symbolic violence to preserve their power, as in the instances we have discussed, students also feel the need to assert their dominance at school among their peers. In the modern day, that often means attacking others through social media. As many high schools do, our school makes use of anonymous public forums on Facebook and Instagram to allow students to share their thoughts.
Sure, some posts are as innocuous as a dazed freshman asking their entire school community how he can get a date, but others can take on darker, more harmful roles. In early October of 2016, an unofficial school Facebook group's moderator, under a pseudonym, posted the following anonymous submission. Why can't I use the word redacted homophobic slur? All of my gay friends say it's funny and I don't really mean anything. Another anonymous member posted, quote, both the KKK and anti-Trump protesters had marched in the last few days. If you're thinking the second group is a greater threat to healthy American democracy than the first, you're a redacted idiot. Still, many others referred to Democratic students as, quote, effing libbies, end quote, and conservative ones as, quote, stupid bigots, end quote. It is the violent, hateful rhetoric like this that creates polarizing social dynamics in high schools, at an institution such as our own, where the majority of the school's community ascribes, at least to some extent, to the ideology of a Democratic Party, the language of both liberal and non-liberal community members can be vindictive. By using words in this way, anonymous members assert their own dominance, opening up an avenue for others to anonymously support or refute their statements. It creates a culture of verbal violence. Though it may seem harmless to some, even constructive or educational at times, the harsh language employed in posts like these can make any student, regardless of their views, feel silenced. At the turn of the presidential cycle in 2016, many students reported feeling attacked even if they themselves agreed with the majority of the school population. Those who were targeted and had their opinions battered down online and in person sometimes grew into a noticeably less, quote, prominent, end quote, position on campus. The verbal violence was a means by which students of all ideologies could show their power and limit the power of others. As a gorilla bears his chest, a student takes to her keyboard. In researching for this podcast, I found that it is the harmful and long-lasting effects of violence that matter more than the act itself, and that finding the root of that violence may be the key to eliminating it. Situations not discussed thoroughly speak of similar sentiments, the accounts of the often crushing sadness and self-doubt that accompanied survivors of emotional and verbal violence all shared the same core qualities. Victims spoke of feeling lost, helpless, confused, and weak. 15% of high school students report being verbally bullied in school and that number soars when we include instances of cyberbullying. Hurt people hurt people. Those in power take it from others. As high school students, even as ones studying the very nature of interpersonal connection and dialogue and violence, we are not immune to the power-hungry culture we live in.
This has been Veiled Violence, Episode 3, by Alexis Gorfine, Adi Millman, Becca Neckerson, and Grace Connor. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll turn into Episode 4 next. <laughs>